America. My name is Armio Frimpong. I come to you live every Thursday about this time. And today I'm going to talk to you about invasive politics and why politics has to be invasive. Once I get my computer right, why politics has to be invasive. And if you're not doing invasive politics, you might not actually be doing politics. And it's not clear why that's the case, but I'm going to explain to you. Right, so one of the appeals of the demographics is destiny crowd, the people who think that like, well, I don't actually have to do politics. All I have to do is uh, uh, wait till demo, uh, demographics does the work for me, is that they don't want to do politics. They don't want to be personal. They don't want to, uh, they don't want to be invasive. They don't want to actually do the, take the risks, not necessarily do the work because work and risk are slightly different. I'm writing a paper on this now, but they don't want to um, take the risks that come with being invasive, right? And politics must be invasive. First of all, the political conditions of a democracy mean that any candidate vying for office needs to be able to access all of the citizenry. So if we were serious about actually securing the conditions for a democracy, we would actually have a communications infrastructure that would, if not force people to listen, but uh, at least give people access to everybody. <laughs> everybody. Like I, as a candidate, if you're serious about doing politics, you need to be able to talk to everybody. So we need to be able to get in everyone's homes. We need to be able to get to all of the voters, right? So that's going to be a form of invasiveness. Also, and that's like top-down invasiveness, that like just to be a democracy, we need to have access to people and people need to have access to us. I need to be able to get inside your mind. And if you want me getting inside more minds, go ahead and shoot this video to your friends because I might. Also, uh, it works the other way too, bottom up. Let's say you have a religion. You're in a religion where women should be seen but not heard, and they're not really supposed to be outside talking to people or speaking to people. That's going to be a problem in a, demo a democratic society where, you know, it's not a portion of the citizen governs the citizenry. The whole citizenry is supposed to govern the entire citizenry, which means that that religion, if not banned in the United States, needs to be deeply stigmatized insofar as it makes the conditions of democracy impossible, right? Like, I need to hear, for me to be a good democratic citizen, I need to hear what, you know, your wife has to say, your daughter, your, you know, above 18-year-old daughter has to say about things and have that not be just a mouthpiece of you. I need to, like, actually, she needs to be able to reason on her own, right? Any sort of understanding of gender that says that, like, my... I just, we get an absentee ballot and I, in my household, I just let my husband fill it out because, uh, you know, that's the way we run our household. That's inappropriate for a democratic society. You can't just lease, you can't like lease your vote to somebody else uh, to vote for you by proxy or by their discretion. Like that's, you can be one flesh in some ways, but we need you to be two citizens. Right? So this idea that um, democracy can be agnostic about what kind of family arrangements, what kind of religious arrangements can happen is, uh, is ridiculous. Well, if you don't know, the archdeacon of, uh, you know, the head of the dialysis, uh, the head of the diocese um, in San Francisco denied Nancy Pelosi communion because he thinks she is pro-choice.
and he's a you know the head of the catholic church in san francisco and he decides who gets communion and he thinks she's pro-choice so there's a way in which um there is a way in which you have to be socially invasive um if you're going to do pro-choice politics and maybe if you do pro-choice politics what you got to do your problem isn't necessarily uh, random talking to voters. Your problem is the whole Catholic Church. Well, not the whole Catholic Church. The Catholic Church that takes pro-life as the litmus test for their votes because they don't have any other real problems. There are other parts of the Catholic Church who actually care about workers and, and, and have a more view. But like upper-class Catholics, they don't have anything to worry about. So like all they have is abortion. <laughs> and that's the issue for them because everything else is peachy for them in America. Right? So you have to understand that if you're serious about pro-choice politics, you're going to have to go after the Catholic Church. And not politically, not ban the Catholic Church. You need to reform the Catholic Church. You need more Catholic uh, Catholics like Sudamayor. Because as long as there's a Catholic Church that has, as a part of their doctrine, that pro-choice is a sin and that Catholics should use not their religious power, not pray for people not to take abortions, but to use their political office as citizens to make it the law of the land, um, then your pro-life or your pro-choice politics has a Catholic problem and you need to reform the Catholic church as an imperative of your politics. Because if the church is telling people to use their power as citizens, use their office as a citizen, uh, the office of citizen of the citizen is the, one of the most powerful offices in the United States, according to Judge Louis Brandeis. Um, you know, 20th century judge who wrote about a bunch of things. But insofar as you're, you're a pro-choice citizen and the Catholic Church is telling their members who are also citizens to use their power, use their office of the citizen to pass laws against you, then you have a problem. Then like the Catholic Church becomes a problem for you. So if you're a single, if you're a single issue voter, first of all, you shouldn't be a single issue voter in general, but not on this issue. But if you are a very, very, very pro-choice voter, then you have to understand, like, maybe you shouldn't. Does that mean you shouldn't elect Catholics anymore? I don't know. I don't know. Because um, if they're taking the marching orders not from reason, and you can't convince them anything because until the Pope has a revelation, well, the Pope actually said, go ahead and give Pelosi communion, but the Archbishop um, had a problem with it, then the Catholic Church becomes a problem for your politics. And there's no small amount, look, in the South, there's no small amount of Christians and Christian nationalists where it's the same thing. White Christians and Christian nationalists, it's the same thing. There's no real serious, there's no serious play at reparations for black people and making black people whole that doesn't fundamentally change the Christian church, the white Christian church. This is what... <laughs> You know, depending on who you talk to, this is what the Union soldiers didn't take seriously enough. So then the white Christian church just became the Klan after Reconstruction came out. Because, you know, their Christianity emerged to support slavery. And unless you change their Christianity, then it's going to emerge to support slavery. By the way, black people have a different Christianity. And they have a... And, you know, evangelical Christians will be like, pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. Black... Christians who are just as Christian will be like, I don't know if we feel comfortable using the law telling to tell women what to do. Like that's just not something black people do. Um, that's 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 just not the way we do our Jesus. So you have to understand that these social institutions are going to have to change if we want political justice. 
right? And so you're invasive, not just in accessing people one-on-one, but if you actually want to do politics, you're going to have to get institutionally invasive because institutions make people. Institutions make people. Institutions make Americanos. Like, that's the thing. Um, by the way, I'm reading this uh, nice little book by Natasha Wawiko, Race at the Top. And it's about actually uh, white people freaking out that so many Asian Americans are moving to their uh, suburbs and beating their kids on standardized tests. The whites are freaking out about this. This is the whole thing. And what what's freaking them out is they're not beating um, Native whites by assimilating, assimilating, they're beating them by not assimilating. <laughs> so these high-performing uh, Asian immigrants come to the United States. Uh, they don't assimilate. And because they don't assimilate, they're not doing things. They're not watching MTV. They're not, um, you know, playing a bunch of sports and all that stuff. They're just studying for the SAT. And what they're doing is kicking your kid's butt on the SAT. They're also kicking your kid's butt in school. So there is um, so there's a strength in non-assimilating that's making some of the whites a little bit nervous. And you can talk about Johns Creek in Georgia. You can talk about Cupertino in uh, Northern California. You can talk about a lot of suburbs where at first the whites were okay with Asian immigrants and, and, and Southeast Asian immigrants and recent immigrants coming over and... Um, but now they're pricing them out and beating their kids in school. So the whites are trying to find like a dumber, whiter suburb to move to. So in Northern California, it's Atherton. <laughs> I don't know. In Georgia, maybe it's Marietta. But because um, uh, like they created these suburbs to get rid of, uh, to, like in, in Forsyth County, literally to get rid of black people. But then now Asians um, come and pay cash for houses, and then outscore your kid by not assimilating. That's the key, by not assimilating. I, I find that fascinating. Um, the book is called Race at the Top. They're winning by not assimilating. <laughs> and the whites don't like it. Um, uh, I am very amused. This is one thing that amused me to no end um, at Berkeley, because Berkeley was predominantly Asian, and the whites felt aggrieved. All they had was their fraternity houses and like, but not, not any other part of campus. And like, they, 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 they did not, some of them did not handle it very well. Um, I was, like I said, I was very amused at the, at the nervous whites in Berkeley. So politics has to be invasive because politics is like wine, right? You can talk about why I don't, I'm a teetotaler. So I'm, this, this, this is a bit abstract for me, but I think it works. Uh, you can talk about wine abstracted from the meal you're serving your wine with. Like this is a good wine. We're not going to talk about what I, what I pair it with, but if you're serious about like actually serving a meal with wine, the wine has to meet the meal, right? And you have to talk about the ingredients of the meal and the ingredients of the meal are your social policy. That's your church, your understanding of property, your understanding of family, your understanding of what civil society and jobs mean. All of that is the meal. And then politics is the wine that pairs with it. So you can have very good politics, but if it doesn't pair with the social policy, it's just not going to be right. Or you could have so-so wine, but it pairs really well with this meal. And the meal was so good, people just forget that the wine was so-so. And that's pretty much a GOP party. The GOP party takes the social aspect of the mutually reinforcing social institutions very seriously. The church, 
matches their school, which matches their family structure, which matches their gender identity, which matches all of these other aspects of which matches the way they think about jobs and life, which matches their white supremacy, like all of it mutually reinforces each other. And then the politics just kind of flows, which means that any old Democrat, any old um, Republican can win. You don't actually have to like, you could be completely forgettable and still, and still win because all of the institutions do you work with. And that's like with a really, 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 really good meal, as long as the wine somewhat matches, people will forget that the wine wasn't the greatest. It'll get like kind of enveloped by the good meal and it'll just be part of a very good meal. Right? And that's, that's quality of, of Republican governance. By the way, in Georgia, Herschel Walker is going to be running against Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker is very famous here in Georgia. He, <laughs> he's not, uh, you know, he, he made his whole life by doing push-ups and sit-ups, more push-ups and sit-ups than you did. And so you have to be very careful when you go after Herschel Walker because both Warnock and Herschel Walker are famous for, for just making white people feel comfortable. And like just kind of being nice guys who work hard and make white people feel comfortable. Neither of them will lead the revolution in any way. Um, but of uh, yeah, but you can you gotta be careful when you start making fun of Herschel Walker. Because one, Dems are snobs. Democrats are snobs, and they're pretty obnoxious people to like be around. White Democrats, white Democrat women are the like the most obnoxious demographic in the nation. They're more obnoxious than conservatives because they just know it. Like, so these people are going to make fun of Herschel Walker on what basis? It's not like Raphael Warnock is like somehow leading the revolution. It's clarified the role of government in your life, which is what you're supposed to do as a politician. You're supposed to clarify the role of government in people's lives. If you can't do that, um, then like, why are you even there? So. You're going to say, Herschel Walker didn't, like, he's not so small. He didn't do blah, blah, blah. You know what? He did a lot of push-ups and sit-ups, and he was very good at football. And in, in terms of clarifying the role of government in people's lives, that's not going to be worse than what Raphael Warnock has done. And so when people call Warnock Little Biden, well, he hasn't actually, like, stuck out in any meaningful way. He's too busy not taking off whites. And you can only do so much for black people not taking off whites. And Democrats have to be very careful about this because they need black people voting like 90, 94% for Herschel Walker. I mean, 90, 94% for Raphael Warnock. And if you start making fun of Herschel Walker, they might just vote for the other Negro just to make you upset for how dare you make fun of the other do-nothing black guy <laughs> as opposed to picking your do-nothing black guy. So, like... If you need black people at 90%, be very, if you're a white person and you're, you're a white Democrat and you need black people voting for Herschel Walker or for Raphael Warnock at 90%, just be very careful what you say about Herschel Walker because we might vote for him just to spite you because, you know, neither of them are doing anything for black people. All right. So, politics. <laughs> Uh, uh, politics has to be invasive. First of all, if you have, let's say you have a father, a father who believes that they should be able to teach their kid what they want. And they want to teach their kid that America doesn't owe anything to black people and that what it is to be a father, what it is to be an American is to not be for reparations. And that's the father's right to teach 
Um, and that's the father's right to teach their kid, right? Well, that's going to be a problem because that version of fatherhood is not consistent with making black people whole. So we need to go after the way they think about fatherhood, <laughs> like, right? So if that's your father, if that's like where the way people think about fatherhood, nobody should be able to teach my kid something that will make my kid ask me hard questions about race in America, especially in Georgia, then that version of fatherhood has to go. That's like a version of parenthood that says, it's my right to teach my kid not to pay and cheat, to not pay any taxes. Well, that's going to be a problematic version of parenthood because I'm going to teach your kid to pay your fair share of taxes. <laughs> so, and you're going to say, well, you're infringing on my right as a father or as a parent. And I'm saying, and I'm going to say that you're doing parenthood badly. And we need to say that a lot of white parents are treating white parents, uh, doing parenthood badly. And this is why you get, you know, a mom giving her kid a gun and two years later for her 16th birthday and then uh, the kid's shooting up a black grocery store because it's a black grocery store. They're doing parenthood badly. Look, if my kids pick up a gun and go shoot up Brooks Brothers or Ann Taylor or Whole Foods or wherever the white, Anthropology, wherever the whites hang out, if my kid does that, you need to blame me because that means I screwed up all of parenthood in an important way. Um, so we need to start blaming the whites are not very, are not great parents. They're not great parents with respect to racial justice. And this is what happens when you raise kids who aren't great parents. Uh, when you have a nation of kids who aren't great parents with respect to racial justice. And let's not be honest. If he doesn't pick up a gun, that guy becomes an engineer. He becomes your hiring manager. He becomes your prosecutor. He becomes your cop. He still becomes a problem because he wasn't parented well. Um, so yeah, so, you know, we need to talk about their parenting because it's not great and it has consequences it has political consequences. People with distorted understanding about the roles of government and making us whole, right? It's invasive, right? So let's say you're a military brat and I'm teaching your kid, um, I'm teaching your kid the history of American war. And we talk about Korea and we talk about like, we bombed villages indiscriminately because they were villages because that's where the people were. Just, we just carpet bombed Korea. We killed so many Koreans. Like we, we didn't just give the South Koreans weapons to kill them. Like we flew missions to bomb Korea, Koreans, because they were Koreans down there. The Korean war is horrific, right? And we, and if I learned more about the Korean War when I was in high school, I'd be, would, I would be more anti-war than I am today, right? But, um, you know, people are going to say that, no, it's, it's, it's my right as a parent to teach my kid to love America's military might and respect America's military, and you're teaching them to hate America's military. And yeah, I'm teaching them that, like, yeah, we indiscriminately killed Koreans in the Korean War because they were there. There was no, like... There were no military sites versus civilian sites. No, we just killed Koreans. It's awful. It's awful. And, um, you know, Cambodia is also really dicey with respect to that. And we have to understand that if your idea of fatherhood is keeping your kid innocent from that, then that's going to be a problem for my idea of, like, responsible citizen co-governing with that kid once that kid turns 18. 
right? So uh, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, apparently a biography of George W. Bush out there where he says, where the biographer pretty much says that George W. Bush doesn't feel bad about Iran. He prayed on it, uh, Iraq. He prayed on it. And all the people who died in Iraq and the destabilization and the, you know, all of that, he feels good because he sleeps fine because he prayed on it and he feels like, oh, well, I'm good with Jesus on it. Right? So that variety of Christianity is going to be a problem with my politics because if you think you can be a war criminal but just pray on it and it'll be fine, then that variety of Christianity needs to, be, needs to go. It needs to be revisited. It needs to be amended. It needs to be made more robust. Right. So if you're saying because people realize themselves through these institutions, these institutions aren't other than people. They are the means through people through which people make themselves themselves. Right. So it's going to feel invasive when I change the quality of George W. Bush's church to a church where war criminals don't just get to pray their way out of it because they didn't pray their way in it. Um. <laughs> they voted their way in it and then armed their way in it. And so you don't get to pray your way out of it. You need to talk about like how you were a, yeah, yeah, you, how you were a uh, part of it, right? So politics has to be invasive because it flows out of social policy. So you're not just going to have to be able to have access to talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. You're gonna to have to have access to conforming the social institutions to uphold your political vision, or at least not be mutually exclusive of it, right? And I think the pro-life, pro-choice, oh, let's talk about guns, all right? So people want in the chat wanna talk about guns. Look, I am fine with guns. I don't need a gun, I feel like, and I get real death threats, this idea that people get guns to defend themselves from government is garbage. People get guns to shoot black people, and then black people get guns to shoot white people who are going to, who get guns to shoot black people. <laughs> right? um, I don't even know if they're Asian gun owners. I don't know. But what I, oh, actually, I, I do know because that Korean woman shot the black girl for shoplifting back in the 90s. I remember that. So, um, this idea that the whites get guns to fight government is ridiculous. Whites don't get guns to shoot the police. <laughs> they get guns to be the police when the police don't come fast enough, when they just want to shoot someone because they want to shoot someone. <laughs> right? So in functional government, I'm not really convinced people need guns. But this idea that the gun culture in America is about defending themselves from a tyrannical government is ridiculous. The gun culture in America is about being willing to shoot black people. Um, and just being willing to shoot people who are on your property. Who are like, not the cops, just people who like, you know, poach your chickens. You want to be able to shoot them. Right, so don't tell me that it's about guns are told. It's a are a tool of self, yeah, they're a tool of their self-deputization, right? It's a tool of becoming the government, not fighting the government. People get guns because they want to play government, right? Now, if guns were just about fighting the government, then the gun talk would look markedly different. And black people maybe should get guns, I don't know. But they do get guns just to, you know, we're talking about getting guns now to defend yourselves from the whites, right? Who, you know, might get mad and 
there were pogroms in the United States. So that is, uh, so we need to be clear about what this, what the Second Amendment does. It's not there to allow people a well-organized militia to fight government tyranny. It's there so that people can become tyrants <laughs> if they want to, so that they can control their fiefdom, so they can self-deputize. And what, how you feel about that, that's a different issue, but that is the issue. Right? Um... Yeah, so politics has to be invasive because it governs it governs social institutions. And if you change the social institution, you change the people who are going to participate and get their identity through that social institutions. Also, politics has to be invasive because social institutions yield citizens. Right, and the quality of social institution, the quality of citizens, social institutions yields matters for the for the project of self governance. But like I said, if you're in a family that says, uh, "Well, my job as a wife is to give my absentee ballot to my husband," that's going to be a problem. <laughs> that's going to be a problem for my politics, um, because that just gives your husband two votes and you no responsibility. Right, you need to be able to. And have your own opinion. If your religion says, well, I just vote the way my pastor tells me to, that's going to be a problem for democracy because that asymmetrically like gives pastors more votes than one vote. <laughs> right? Um, so we, you need the social institutions to conform themselves to the uh, conditions of democracy. This doesn't mean we ban churches, but it does mean that they become political problems. And we need to talk about how a political imperative to reform these churches. And I said it before, if you're really pro-life, it doesn't matter what kind of bills you get on the books. Your problem is the Catholic Church and the white Christians. Um, and until you change that quality of Christianity and Catholicism and make it more of a Sotomayor Catholicism or a, a, a black Christianity, then that church is just going to always be a political thorn in your side. So if you're serious about pro-choice politics, you need to change the church. Right? And like I said before, and I, you know, I might've had a whole video about this. If you're serious about getting black people justice, you gotta change the entitlements white people have towards their family. Because right now they feel entitled to be able to talk to their kid and their kid not make them nervous about racial justice. But if I teach them, they're going to come home with all sorts of questions to their family and their family's going to resent them because, you know, their kids are going to be armed with the truth about what we, owe black, what we as Americans owe black people. And if you are a parent who's actually doing their job, you'll be like, yeah, what, we need to talk about what we owe Amer as Americans to black people. If you're a parent who's not doing your job, you're just going to, regret, you're going to resent the question and then get mad at the school for teaching your kids the truth about how America, which didn't die like people does, nations and institutions don't die like people do. So when a nation owes a debt or an institution owes a debt, that debt should get paid to the people. Black people didn't die after slavery. America didn't die after slavery. So America owes black people. Um, yeah. So even if the same Americans are not the same slaves, there's like institutions don't die like people do. So institutions should pay their debt. All right, thank you for your...
Thank you for your time. It's funny. We're, we're really cool talking about corporate actors as citizens until we talk about if, well, if they're corporate, if there's a, such thing as corporate personhood, then <laughs> these persons need to pay their debts to the communities they exploited. Thank you for your time. I will see you next week about the same time talking to something different. Talking about something different. I might go on Rising next week. That, uh, not Rising, uh, Breaking Points with Crystal and Saga next week. So that should be fun. And I have another interview lined up next week. So that should be fun. I will uh, take care. By the way, if you like anything I do, go ahead to www.funkyacademic.com. You know, I, I put in a little bit of thought and no small amount of time doing this show. And I think you should give me five, fifteen, or $50 a month. Either go to the Patreon, give it there, or you can go to funkyacademic.com and give it there. And, you know, help me market and you know, pay for my kids' music lessons and stuff like that. Maybe get a new curtain. Um, and thank you for your time. And I will talk to you next week.